now I've learned that Mark is multi-talented. He's got this piano in his phone. It's absolutely amazing. Amazing the technology. Just kind of takes me back. Uh, Angela will remember this. Luke was way too small to remember this. We were in a church split, believe it or not. And uh, the church that split off, uh, I was pastoring. And um, anyway, we had no pianist and no organist. And uh, that was back when CDs were the big thing. And uh, so we had a lady that was more than capable of musical. She was musically gifted. But she would play the CD and you would try to sing to that. Well, you know, the CD doesn't slow down. And if you miss, it just keeps on going. And so it was a disaster on many, many levels. But this did very well. You did good. But uh, we do appreciate David, and we do appreciate Miss Pat, right? Yeah, they're a blessing to us all. We look forward to seeing them next Lord's Day. Well, if you have your bulletins, did you get the uh, title in there? Okay. Well, I'm not going to preach that. If you want to listen to that, you can go to our church and listen to that online. It's on there now, right, Luke? You know? Should be. I want to change it up a little bit tonight. Um, I don't mind preaching the same thing over and over again, but you're, you're welcome to uh, go online and listen to that sermon that I did this morning. And it was discussing the topic of uh, the recent shooting in Texas and get a, giving a biblical response to it. And uh, I would encourage you to take a listen to it. But what I'd like to do tonight, and uh, maybe the next time we come together, is talk about something we've been going through in our church on a new members class. We started that in our church for a number of reasons, and one of the things that was interesting is that although we're very, very much smaller than Grace Church out in California where MacArthur is, we had a very similar thing happen at our church. Whenever the COVID years happened, the 20 and 21 uh, we started getting people in our church coming from different churches that uh, wanted to come somewhere where the doors were open and they could worship. And uh, we started noticing that we were getting people from a non-reformed background. And so that was kind of critical because whenever we would sit down with them about new membership, we would talk about what we are as a Reformed Baptist church and what we believe. And we would talk about uh, elder government. We would talk about church discipline. And uh, I remember we had one family that sat there coming from Calvary Chapel in Lexington, South Carolina, and they said, what is church discipline? We've never heard of that. They had been at Calvary Chapel for 12 years, and Calvary Chapel doesn't even have church membership. And so um, whenever they left, they told me that no one even called them or missed them, and he was a greeter. And uh, so that's kind of interesting, but... Along with that and a couple of other families that came to our church, we were beginning to notice that we were experiencing some of the same things that John MacArthur and his church out in California were experiencing. People were coming from different backgrounds who had no clue of what they believed. They were wanting to join. They wanted to hear the word of God taught, but they didn't know the background. Whereas it used to be, John says, that in their church, the primary new, believe, new people coming into their church were new believers, new converts, which had a clean slate usually that you can start with and teach them the word of God. And the others were people that came out of the same kind of background theologically, the same kind of roots as far as their belief system is concerned. So there wasn't a whole lot of uh, problems there and needs for instruction. But they noticed that now, as they had, I think this last two years, they've had 2,000 additions to their church. And they've had to revamp their whole approach and to start classes to help them to know uh, what they believe and what they're about. 
So we've done the same thing. And what I've done is I've taken the opportunity of all the people who come to our church, we've invited them to come, especially the people who are new, and to take them through a new member's class. It, it won't be like it was um, in the it won't be like it was as far as me teaching them these last few months because it'll be concise, concise into six weeks. But what I've done is taken extensive time going through the purpose and the plan of the church. We've talked about now the solas of the Reformation, uh, which are sadly in many evangelical churches, they don't even know what that is. And uh, we're talking about the doctrines of grace. We're going to talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper. So those things are critical that you understand what you're doing so what I'd like to do tonight is just to begin along those lines. So I want you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to address this topic beginning tonight of the purpose and the plan for the church. The purpose and the plan for the church. I want to read the passage that we are familiar with in Matthew chapter 16. I want to begin in verse 13, and I'll read down through verse 19. This is Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 and following. The word of God says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am, the Son of Man? So they said, Some say that you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. But I will give to you the, kingdoms of, the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Some have said that the church today is in a mess. And it is in many ways, and sadly, the last 20 years have produced more of a mess. We have a large population of unregenerate people in the churches. A lot of that goes back to the marketing mentality and the techniques even of Rick Warren, Bill Hybels. Whenever they would go out and do surveys in the community and ask the community of lost people, what do they want in a church? And they would give them answers, what they wanted in a church. Usually it was more upbeat music. Uh, get rid of the hymns, they're too old. Uh, make sure that you have short, upbeat, very positive sermons. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about hell and judgment. And make sure the dress code is very relaxed. Uh, so a lot of those things were implemented and brought into the church. And as a result of that, over the years, we've had a dumbing down of theology and a dumbing down of the gospel to the point now that there's large populations of people in the churches that do not know Christ at all. They do not know the gospel. They do not understand what it is to be saved. They don't know what the church is about, what its purpose is, and what the plan of God is for the church. So I think it's important for us sometimes to go back and revisit those things, to talk about the things that are most essential to all of us. And whenever I talk about the church, I'm not talking about the building. I'm not talking about this building, even though this is a beautiful place to be able to meet together and worship. When I talk about the church, I'm talking about you, the people. You are the church. Whether we had this building or not, we're still the church. Wherever we assemble together, we are the church assembled. Wherever we scatter, we are the church scattered. And wherever we are is the church. And by the way, just to be clear on this, you don't need two or three gathered together to be the church. Wherever you are, the church is. And so we need to understand that. We are the called out ones. The ecclesia is the Greek word for church. 
We are the called out of God, by God, for the purpose of God, for the future of God's glory. And with that said, I want to just give you a quick quote by Michael Griffith, a British writer who said these words, and I quote, Christians collectively seem to be suffering from a strange form of amnesia. A high proportion of the people that go to church have forgotten what it's all about. Week by week, they attend services in the special buildings. They go through particular time-honored routines. They give little thought, however, to the purpose of what they're doing. The Bible talks about the bride of Christ, but the church seems like a ragged Cinderella, hideous among the ashes. That's really a sad but true commentary on much of the church today, and it doesn't have to be that way. I'm very thankful to hear and see that there are more men of God standing up for the truth of God and being willing to take the church back to the foundational truths that the church should be built on. But for us to understand what the church is, we just have to ask a couple of questions about it, and we'll understand more of what God intends for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing I think to say about the church, if we were to ask the question, what is the church? Well, the first thing is, and it should be obvious to all of us, it is saved. The church is saved. Now, in some contexts, that's going to sound strange. Some people are going to think, well, why do you have to say that? Well, because a large portion of people in the churches aren't saved. They have made false confessions of faith. They have walked the aisle, signed the card, prayed the prayer, but they've never been truly converted. And that is evident in some of the lifestyles and really the lack of attendance and faithfulness to the local assemblies. The Bible does, doesn't tell us that the church is made up of believers and unbelievers. The Bible says the church is made up of believers and only believers. In fact, Peter said it like this, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. We, as the church, are the people of God. We have been called out of darkness into marvelous light. We have obtained mercy when we once were not receiving mercy. We are a saved group of people. That's what the church is. The church is not unsaved, it's saved critical to understand that in fact there's discussion being talked about on many occasions now about what it means to have a regenerate church membership and my question is why in the world do we even have to discuss that but it's because people don't understand that the church should be made up of saved people now that does not mean that lost people can't come in fact we would pray that this place would be literally full of lost people so that they could hear the gospel of Christ and hear the word of God and be saved. But as far as the body of Christ, as far as the membership of a local body, they need to be saved. Churches need to have implemented means by which they evaluate the people that are coming into their body and making sure that they are saved, asking questions to help to see whether or not these people are genuinely saved. Whenever I was first a Christian, it was very, very simple to join a church you could come down after the service, usually during the invitation, and you would say, Pastor, I want to join this church. You would fill out a little information, put a couple of statements on it. Are you a Christian? Christian, check the box. That was it. You were in, and you were a member of a local church. Well, that's not really the best way to do it. There needs to be an opportunity to ask some open-ended questions to make sure that people do know the Lord. 
People come from different backgrounds. People have different ideas of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And you will be surprised as to how many people really don't understand the basics of the gospel. The basics of the gospel. So the first and most important element of any church is that that membership be saved. And could I add this just for a side note? Make sure the leadership is saved, right? I had churches that I pastored where I had deacons that were lost. They were so lost, I don't believe they even knew where they were. They were so lost. And uh, it was just a tragic thing whenever you would introduce something from the Word of God and they would respond, what in the world does that have to do with anything? We have our Constitution and bylaws. And leadership that's not saved can cause you a whole lot of heartache in any local church. But the second point about a church is this. It should not only be saved, but it should be sanctified. Now, that's an ongoing process, I'll admit. I mean, you're initially holy in Christ, yes, by imputation, but there's an ongoing process of sanctification. There are literally hundreds of verses I could go to to support this, but one would be just probably good enough, which would indicate the purposes of God for his church. Romans 8, 28 and 29. Listen to this. For we know... That all things, that's good and bad, work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So there's an overarching plan of God whereby he's going to use everything in your life, the good and the bad, to conform you and to make you like a Christian, to make you like his own. And he's going to work it out for the good, but then he gives the plan in verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, God has a purpose for you, and his purpose is to make you like Christ. Well, if you're going to become like Christ, you're going to become holier than you are right now. You're going to become a sanctified person. And as I told you, that's a process. Whenever someone is saved, they're delivered from darkness into light, and then the process of sanctification begins with the presence of the Holy Spirit working in that life through the Word of God, through the church, through the ordinances, through the fellowship of the saints, through the teaching of Scripture, to sanctify you and to make you more like Jesus Christ. And if you think you're getting out of it, you're not. Verse 29 says, He has predestined it to be so. And whatever God predetermines, it will happen. It will happen. You can fight it, you can fall, you can falter in your Christian life, but you will get there. You will get there. And so God has called for that sanctified body. The third one we don't like, but this is actually part of the plan of God for his church. Not only that they be saved and sanctified, but also that they are suffering. That they're suffering. Peter wrote to a group of believers that were suffering immensely. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, they were under the persecution of Nero. He was not a nice guy. He did not like the believers. He blamed them for the setting of Rome afire. And he used that as a means of torturing them, abusing them, killing them. And so whenever the, Peter writes these words, he's not talking to people who had a bad day because their tire went flat on their car or their coffee spilled on them on the way to work. That's not what he's talking about. The suffering he's talking about here is the loss of life and the persecution to the point of everything being taken from you. 1 Peter 1, 6 says, in this, what this, the trials, the persecutions, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various multicolored trials. That's the idea behind the word various. All kinds of trials, all kinds of 
tribulation, all kinds of persecution, you are going to rejoice in the future salvation you have in Christ, even though, if need be, it says, in God's purposes, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like I said, we don't like it, but God's ordained it. In fact, it even says in Philippians that God has ordained not only that you believe in Christ, but also that you suffer for him. Now, we are blessed, wouldn't we all agree? I don't think any of us had anything thrown at us coming here today or probably did not get shot at and probably won't get that whenever we go home. We're not suffering like most of the world is suffering. Most of the Christian community throughout the world, especially under communist rule, in some of these countries with dictators, are suffering immensely for their faith in the Middle East, in China, North Korea, or just to name a few. But I grant you, based upon the trajectory of our country and where it's headed and the leadership of our culture, we are in trouble for that. We're going to see more and more hostility toward the believers. It's going to come in your pocketbook. It's going to come against your family and homeschooling. It's going to come against a lot of things that you may not have thought of. It may not necessarily be a personal assault on you physically, but it's going to come. And you're going to have to be prepared to understand that this is not something that should take you by surprise. You should actually honor the Lord through it and thank God for it. Because it's going to be used in your life to sanctify you and to make you depend upon Christ even more through it. It's going to be a challenge, but it is part of the plan that God has for his church. A fourth part of a church, a New Testament church, is that they usually, on biblical basis, are a second coming church. In other words, they're not just looking to this world for their hope and their enjoyment and their joy. They're looking forward to the blessed hope of the Lord Jesus Christ coming back. I don't know about you, but with where we're going right now in our country, I look forward to the time the Lord's going to come back. I'm anticipating it. I'm hoping he'll come back soon. The only thing I would want him to delay his coming for is like many of us would, that more would be, would be saved, more would come to Christ. That would be the only reason why I would want him to hold up. But if I were to have my way, which I'm not, I would want him to come back now. And the Bible says that the church, the New Testament church, you read First and Second Thessalonians, those letters are clearly representative of a church that was a second coming church. They were so excited about the coming of Christ that many of them had quit their jobs, sat up on the roof, if you will, waiting for the Lord to come back. That's not the kind of uh, attitude I want you to have. I want us to be diligent, obviously, about what God's called us to do, but hopeful for the soon return of Christ. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. Paul told the Thessalonian Christians in chapter 1 verse 9, he said, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There is no such thing in the New Testament as a church that was not eagerly waiting for and hastening the return of Jesus Christ. They always were that way. When Jesus says, I'm going away, and these angels stood there as the disciples watched him leave, and they say, why are you stand gazing up into the heavens in Acts chapter 1? 
He said, this same Jesus who went away is going to come back in like manner. That means he's coming back bodily. He's coming back in the clouds. He's going to show up one day, and all of us need to be ready, and we should be eagerly waiting for it. John said that if you have this hope in you, you purify yourself even as he is pure. So it has a sanctifying effect on the church. So the church should be saved, sanctified, suffering, and a second coming church. But let's go a little further now. Let's ask a question. Who or what is the head of the church? Who or what is the head of the church? Now, there's a lot of people who have different ideas regarding that. Some say that it's an, a board or a council of men or some other denominational structure. But the Bible is very clear about this. Very clear. But before I tell you what it is or who it is, let me tell you what it is not. The head of the church is not the pastor. That's a shock, right? No, not here. It's not the pastor or the elder or the elders. They are not the head of the church. And also, especially since I came out of a Southern Baptist background, the deacons are not the head of the church. The deacons don't rule the church. You wouldn't know otherwise in many of the churches today, but that's exactly what the Bible is very clear on. The deacons are not the head of the church. They don't rule the church. And then also, it's not an outside ecclesiastical body. There's no other body outside this church that has the authority to be the head of this church at all. So who is the head of the church? Well, the Bible's clear. It's Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. He is the supreme sovereign one over his church. Matthew 16, 16. Look at the text we read earlier. Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter answered and said to Jesus, when he asked the question, who do you say that I am? Peter responds by saying, you are the Christ. Now that's the word for Messiah, the Greek form of the word Messiah. You are the Christ, the anointed one. And then he says, the son of the living God which, unlike the Jehovah Witnesses who do not understand this father-son relationship, whenever Peter said that, he understood the deity here. He knew that he was not talking about someone separate from God, but that the, being the son meant that he was of the same essence as God. He was the son of the living God. Peter answered correctly. He accurately understood who Jesus was. He was not just a prophet. He was not just a rabbi. He was indeed the Messiah that was promised years ago by the prophets. And he is the son of the living God, God in flesh. So Jesus responds. Look at verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter you didn't get this because you went to a good school. You didn't get this because you're better educated than the other disciples. You receive this and you understand this because God literally, sovereignly granted you this. Reminds me of the passage over in John 12. The Bible says there that Jesus has the power to reveal himself to whomever he wills. And here in this context, clearly, God has revealed Jesus Christ to Peter, accurately so. But then, 
Jesus goes on and says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now the Roman Catholics obviously have taken that to mean that Peter is the first apostle, therefore he is the one upon which the church is built. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. There are two distinct Greek words that are used here that make the separation very clear. First of all, in verse 18, he says, I say to you that you are Peter. The word is petros, P-E-T-R-O-S. That means a small pebble, a small rock, something that you would see on the road or the sidewalk that you would walk over, that kind of small pebble. He says, you are Peter. You're a small pebble, a small stone, Peter. But on this rock, he changes the word from petros to petra, P-E-T-R-A. And in that text, he's saying, I'm going to build my church on this rock. Not you, Peter, but on this rock. And we have to ask the question, what exactly is that rock? What is he talking about? Well, based upon the context, it's clear that what he's talking about here is the confession of Peter. He is going to build his church on this statement. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what he will build his church on. The confession, the confession of who Christ is. The declaration of who Christ is, both Old and New Testament, that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God, God in human flesh. That's the statement, the truth upon which the church will be built. But also notice in verse 18, don't want to skip this point. He says, I will build my church. He did not say the pastor will build it. He didn't say you will build it. He did not say some ecclesiastical body will build it. He didn't say if you buy a sign, they'll come. He didn't say any of those things. He didn't say hand out popcorn and peanuts and laser lights. None of that has anything to do with building the church. None of it. One of the things that is very encouraging, even in the context of this church here in Rock Hill, is that you guys will come, even if the music isn't the best at the moment, right? And you still stay. And the reason why is because I know you're here for more than that. That's not what you're here for primarily. You're primarily here for the word of God being preached and for a church that affirms the confession. That confirms the confession here that we find in this text. And whenever a church is built around the truth of the word of God, it will be a strong, sound, biblical church that honors Christ. Now, verse 18, he says, I will build my church. It's his church. You notice the personal pronoun there. My church, not our church. It's his church. This is his body, not ours, not mine, not yours. It's his. He owns his church. In fact, the Bible says that he paid for this church. He owns us. And we are his slaves, according to what the scripture says. He also tells us in the same text that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. All the, all the threats, all the attempts, all the uh, attacks of hell itself will not stop the progress of the church. The world can throw everything it possibly can at the church, and it will not stop the progress of the church. It is amazing to note, and this is a historical fact, that every time the church is persecuted, it seems to grow more. In some of the most persecuted areas on the planet where you think everybody would be running and cowering and hiding, the church is growing. It might be underground, but it's growing and it's flourishing. One of the most blessed things I've read in the last few years is what's happening in China. 
I mean, we read the bad headlines. We see what's happening over there with the uh, leadership of that country and what they do to the cities over there. But at the same time, we might think, well, man, this is just an atheistic, godless culture, but there is a large population and growing population of believers there that affirm the Lord Jesus Christ and love him. We just had the privilege of witnessing today, I was sent a video that uh, we, we published The Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink in Russian. And uh, we have a lady in our church that actually speaks Russian, and so she was able to check it and make sure that we didn't have some Armenian teaching in there along with what we believe. <laughs> Nevertheless, so it was published, and we finally got a video of that today. It actually came this morning of the pastors there with the hundreds of copies of this book. And so we're getting it out to all these pastors and leaders in Russia. And listen, whenever you're living in the context of what they're living in, you better believe in the sovereignty of God. You need to have something to hold on to. And so we wanted to put in their hands good, solid material that they can go back to and they can learn and they can be stable in the context they are living in and preaching in and, and teaching their churches in. And also we had the privilege of getting a book by Justin Peters uh, translated also, and they had that, which was a blessing to see. You may not realize this, but false teaching like Benny Hinn and all of these nonsensical false teachers have infiltrated Russia, China, uh, Africa. It's literally saturated with it. And so we're trying to get good information out there into the hands of these pastors so they'll have means by which they can stand firm for the faith and see the church prosper in those areas. So Jesus says, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys. This is Jesus Christ sovereignly giving to the disciples the keys to the kingdom, which, by the way, these keys are not physical keys, but this is the gospel. The gospel is the key. In other words, they are given the key to tell people whether or not they enter into heaven by believing the gospel. That's what he means by bind on earth or loose on earth. That was a pharisaical phrase that referred to permitting or not permitting. And so what Peter's being told here is, I give you the keys, I give you the gospel, I give you the authority to tell a person, listen, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you're lost. I don't permit you to go to heaven. Why? Because you don't know the truth. You're not confessing Christ. Or someone who says, I believe Jesus alone is my salvation and my Savior. I confess him alone to save me from my sin. I can tell that person, you are going to heaven. Why? Because I have the keys to the heaven, keys to the kingdom of heaven, which is the gospel. And they were given that. Well, Colossians is another text that tells us there that Jesus is the head. This is a beautiful, beautiful text. Colossians 1.15, Christ is the image of the invisible God. If you want to see the invisible God, look at Christ. If you want to know God, look at Christ. If you want to know what he's like, look at Jesus. That's what he's telling us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn or the preeminent one over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, that are invisible or visible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. The point of that, that passage is this. Christ is the creator of all things. He owns everything. He's the sovereign of all things. And everything is through him and for him. Everything. Verse 17, and he, Christ, is before all things, and in him all things are held together. He's the one who holds this mess of a world together right now, keeps it from falling apart. 
verse 18, and he, Christ again, is the head. He's the head of the body, the church. Now think about that. If you were to lose your head, how well would your body be doing right now? Anybody awake? Not too good, right? You wouldn't be doing too well at all. The point is, it's amazing, they've gotten very good at transplanting hearts. They can transplant livers. They can transplant even other parts of your body. They're able to sew on limbs and legs and arms and fingers and do all kinds of things. They even give skin grafts. And they've recently done some face plants, transplants, whatever they are. But anyway, it's kind of interesting what they can do. But you know what they haven't been able to do yet? Is transplant the head. Where the mind is. Where the brain is. Where the computer is. Where everything comes from. Right there. Bible identifies it as the heart of man, not here, but here. And so Jesus is the head. He's the means by which the body functions. He's the source of truth for the body. He's the source of strength for the body. He's the enabler of the body. He does all the things for the body. Without the head, we do nothing. Without the head, we are nothing. And that's what the Bible means by the fact that he is the head. He is the sovereign leader. He's the sovereign ruler. He's the one who controls this body. He's the one who gives the body its strength and its life. Ephesians 5.23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And then he even said this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. The head of the church is the savior of the church. The head of the church is the very one that gave his life for the church so that he could be indeed the head of the church. So the head of the church is not some ecclesiastical body. It's not even the elders. The elders are under shepherds and they rule under the authority of Christ. Christ is the one who rules. And the way he delineates his rule is through the word of God. And that's, by the way, what we find in um, the next point about that, that he comes and he rules. He doesn't show up here physically and rule. He doesn't rule through the apostle Peter. He rules through godly leaders that are given to the church. We call them elders, pastors. That's the same thing. Matthew 16, again, that text in verse 18 and 19 says, Jesus will give to the disciples then that became the apostles the keys to the kingdom. They're the ones who have the ability to bind, permit, or not permit. In other words, in the church, this is what the Bible is teaching us here in other places, is that the elders, the pastors of a local church are the ones through whom Christ rules and mediates his rule to the church, and that because the elders are to line up with the Bible and what the Bible teaches, they can tell the church, we can do this, and we can't do that. Well, why, pastor, can we do this? Because God's word says we can do this. Or we can't do that. Because why, pastor? Because the word of God says so, not him. He has no authority to come to your house and tell you to pay, paint your room green or mow your grass next week or anything like that. Thank God, right? That would be rather intrusive. But the point is, is that whenever it comes to the church, God has given godly leaders to the church to mediate his rule through those godly leaders, using the word of God. Correctly interpreted, by the way, is also important. So, we see that very important part of the church. Let's ask another question. 
I have to make sure I can see I've got another three hours left. This is good. So what is the purpose of the church? What's the purpose of the church? Well, I think all of us here today would understand the answer to that. Ultimately, the purpose of the church is the glory of God. That's what the church exists for. That's why you were created, in fact. And you were saved for the purpose of God's glory. You are to put on display the very glory of God. The marvelous, very long sentence of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 and following in those verses He says that you have been predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. He says that a couple of times in that text that it's for the praise of the glory of his grace. He says that in verse 12 again that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. You exist, I exist, this church exists for the glory of God. What does that mean? That means that we put on display to the world who God is. That's our purpose. When the church fails in this, it fails in its very purpose. It's not about entertaining the saints. It's not about making all of us feel good. It's not about emotionalism. It's about the glory of God. And sometimes that comes in very difficult ways. Sometimes it comes in discipline in the church sometimes it comes with confrontation in the church sometimes it comes with confession in the church sometimes it comes by the holy spirit convicting us severely in the church sometimes it comes with repentance personally and publicly and even corporately but there's other ways in which god brings glory to himself by the praise of his people by finding a group of people like philippians says that are able to live in a crooked and perverse generation, listen to this, without complaining. You want to stand out in this world? Try that. It works real well, because you look totally different than everybody else. And that's what the Bible says, that we can glorify God in a hundred other ways. So the first and very important overarching purpose of the church is the glory of God. Secondly, the edification of the saints. The edification of the saints. Now this will come as a shock to some because years ago, whenever churches used to assemble together, their primary purpose was the evangelization of the saints. In other words, when a Sunday service service came, you would come together and no matter what text you were in, which was usually a topical text, you would go through the Bible, the pastor would, he would find a good text and it could be a parable, it could be another text. And he would preach that with the intention of evangelizing the people that were there. The whole goal was to get it to the end of the service so that you could have an invitation. And that you could call people down front and ask them to repent of their sin and to be saved. Now, I don't want to be hypercritical of that because I was saved in that environment. There are many people, in fact, that were saved in that environment. But even though God uses our misunderstanding of what the church is about initially... The Bible teaches that whenever you come together as a body, the purpose of the church assembled together is not evangelism, but edification. Now, it's not to say that we don't evangelize. Whenever we have the Lord's Supper, we evangelize. We talk about the need to be a Christian and what it means to trust Christ. And in many ways, there's ways you can be preaching through a text and you can call people to faith in the context of that text. Jerry Vines, who used to be the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jacksonville, Florida, said that you can always put a gospel hook in any message you preach. 
And you can. I mean, you can get the Jesus Christ out of any of these texts. It's very easy to do. And it's very easy to show the need to trust Jesus. And if you're in some text, let's say you're in the, uh, the passages in the Old Testament of all the begats, right? And you're having a hard time getting through that. Well, at the end, you know what you could say? Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men. If you don't trust him, you're going to die and go to hell. That's what you can do. There's your gospel hook. And the point is this, is that when we have come together, and this is missed so often in churches, the edification and the instruction of the body of Christ in the word of God. That hour that you have on a Sunday together, that time whenever the body of Christ comes together to meet in this one place, what is our purpose? Our purpose is to be equipped, edified, built up, instructed, encouraged in the word of God. There's a passage in Ephesians. If you want to turn there, you can. Ephesians 4. This is a beautiful reminder of the purpose of the church. It says in Ephesians 4.11 that Christ himself gave some to the church to be apostles. That would be the initial 12 apostles. And then some prophets, these were those during the church time that spoke the word of God whenever we didn't have the canonized scripture. I mean, you need someone to tell you what God is going to require of you. And so that was happening in the early New Testament time before the canonization of the Bible. And then you had evangelists. He says he gave to the church apostles, prophets, this is verse 11, and some evangelists. These are not pastors with three ties and three sermons that go from church to church to church and preach. The evangelist was a man like Paul who went into an area that did not name the name of Christ, stay there long enough to see people come to Christ, establish a church, and move on to the next place. Those are New Testament evangelists or Really, they're church planters, is what they are. But then he says, also he gave to the church pastors and teachers. Some believe that the pastors should be pastors hyphen teachers, that there's not a distinction between the two. If you're a pastor, you're a teacher. If you're a teacher in the church, then usually you are a pastor. But one thing's for sure, if you are a pastor, you have to be able to teach. That's one of the qualifications of the pastor that makes him distinctly different from a deacon. A deacon doesn't have to have the gift to teach or the ability to teach, but the pastor has to be able to teach. He has to be able to be well-equipped in the Word of God enough that he can lead a people in the Word of God and properly interpret Scripture so that they can be conformed to Christ. And that's why he says it in verse 12. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers for what? For the equipping the old authorized version says for the perfecting or some may have the translation that says for the building up the idea is the edification of the body of Christ that includes a lot of things it includes the teaching of scripture the admonishing of scripture the reproof of scripture the rebuke of scripture the correction with scripture the encouragement with scripture all of those things that come alongside of that not only through the teaching but also the on the on-site involvement of the pastor in the life of the people that's one of the things I think MacArthur said. He said he can't stand flat-screen churches. And what he means by that is, you know, churches that are pipe, they pipe it in. You know, you got a local church, and then there's a church 30 miles away, 40 miles away, 50 miles away. They have a big flat screen, and they pipe the pastor in. He comes on the screen, but you never see the pastor. 
You never see his family. You never interact with him. You never see how he leads, how he lives. You see, the Bible says that the churches are to be led by pastors and teachers to equip the body of Christ for the work of the ministry. And the point is this, is that it's not my responsibility to do the work of the ministry. My job is, and Mark's job is, to equip you so that you can do the work of the ministry. And a church that does that is a thriving church, a church that reaches people for Christ and one that grows in that context because if, it, if it's all dependent upon the guy that gets the paycheck, you're going to find out that the church is not going to be as effective as it could be if the body is more involved in reaching people, talking to people, discipling people, and doing the work of the ministry. Too often we have the, the idea in churches, well, he's the pastor. That's his responsibility to do that. We pay him. Now what you, listen to this, here it goes. I can say this because I'm not up here all the time, so I'm going to say it on behalf of Mark. You pay the pastor, listen to this, so that he can be free from a job to stay home and study the scripture and pray so that he can teach you. That's what you do that for. It isn't to give him a cushy job so he doesn't have to do, do anything. If he's doing what he's supposed to do, I mean, two sermons a week, that's usually 30 to 40 hours of study, usually. And so these pastors are given for the equipping of the church for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And how long does that go on? Well, uh, basically forever until the Lord returns. Look at verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So that means we got a long way to go, right? I'm sure everybody has all their theology right, and everybody knows the Bible perfectly in here, but until we finally get all the body of Christ there, there's an ongoing job. There's a job available for any elders and pastors. There's a need for them everywhere. All right, there's a third reason. A third reason. And that is the evangelization of the lost. We don't want to forget that. Yes, we come together for the purpose of edification, but we, we scatter for evangelization. And that doesn't mean necessarily that you've got to be on the, out on the street preaching or you've got to actually go out on the street and hand out tracts. You can do that. And you can hand out tracts at the uh, restaurant that you go to. You can do 100 things to reach people for Christ. But it can also mean that where you work, that you're building relationships with people and you're talking to them about your life and Christianity and the gospel and even inviting them to come and be with you on a Sunday so that they can hear the word of God and be around God's people and be convicted. Like it says in Corinthians, whenever they came into the assembly, if the word of God was preached clearly, they would fall on their face before God, acknowledging God was there. That's what you want. We're all given that commandment. In Matthew 28, and verse 18 and 19 and 20, all authority has been given to me, Christ says, in heaven and on the earth. Go therefore and make disciples. Make disciples is the main verb here. That's the command, make disciples. Going, baptizing, and teaching are all participles, and they modify the main verb. The main verb is to make disciples. We are commanded to do so, make followers of Jesus Christ, and we do that as we are going, wherever we are, whether we're here, somewhere else, overseas, locally, with our families, whatever that may be. We are to do all of that. Well, I have a few minutes left, I think. I'm going to close out with just a couple other points about what is the plan of the church. 
saw the purpose is the glorification of God primarily, the edification of the saints and the evangelization of the lost. But now what is the plan for that? How does that all work out? And I'm not going to finish this so y'all can relax. But the first is something that is obvious. And that is a regular weekly worship. Regular weekly worship. The Bible even says in John 4.23, as Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, at that time you had the Samaritans who would worship on Mount Gerizim. They didn't affirm the, the whole of the Old Testament. I think they only believed the first five books of the Old Testament. Then you have the Jews who worshiped on the Temple Mount, and uh, they affirmed the whole of the Old Testament. So there, were a, there was a division there, even in their worship. But then in John 4, 23, he says, The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, there's a goal that God has for his church and that is to have a worshiping community. We are to be worshipers of God. And that means more than just sitting down and going through the routine. There needs to be an attitude of worship, a heart of worship, a commitment to worship, a plan and a purpose of worship, and a preparation for worship. All of those are so essential. Too many people approach Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon or even any worship during the week. I don't have to worry about that. Just show up. No preparation in heart, mind at all. You know, the pendulum has swung a couple of times in different directions. I don't know if you've noticed this. I definitely have. I know when I first became a Christian, everybody wore one of these. I wear this for a different reason than what you think. I don't wear it for the church or to make me feel special. I wear it because I believe what I'm doing is important and it requires it for me. That's my own personal conviction. But at the same time, you know, it used to be years ago that people had a little bit of preparation when it came to worship. I know I'm meddling a little bit, but let me meddle for a second. And here's the point. The pendulum was this. Oh, there's too much dress code. There's too much strictness in dressing. And so all of a sudden, it just went a total different direction. And I am not kidding you. Some people were showing up in their pajamas. At least it looked that way. With flip-flops. I mean, barely getting out of bed, barely combing their hair. And it was kind of like, okay, hey, Sunday morning, I, got, I get to sleep in, get to enjoy my time, you know, at home. It's the weekend, right? Hey. And so they would do that, no preparation. And I'm not saying that dressing is necessarily going to make worship right for you at all. I'm not saying that. I think you can dress in a very proper and very modest way in such a way that honors the Lord. And it doesn't have to be suit and tie. No, not at all. You can be comfortable and be neat and, and give time and effort that makes it important to you. I mean, whatever you prioritize is what is important to you. If you had the opportunity to meet a good president of the United States, and you were going to meet that president, I mean, would you just say, ah, I'm just going to get up. I hope I make it. I'm not even going to set the alarm. We'll see what happens. Oh, no, no, no. We would give it special attention, wouldn't we? And what more should we give whenever we come together? The heart attitude should be there, that we give our attention to those things. Steve Lawson talked about it often, that whenever he was a, a young boy, his dad would have his suit and his shoes they would make it all prepped the night before. It would be all laid out so that they can get that suit on and be ready to go that Sunday morning. And Steve is still there today. He's the same mentality. And he, he just believes that in his own personal life, he needs to give that time 
to God in a personal way. That's just one area. I mean, it could come a hundred different ways, how we look at worship, whether we plan for it, purpose for it, or whether we just kind of hope it works out. If we make it, we make it. If we don't, we don't. No, the Bible says that the church is to be a worshiping community. And there are plenty of people and plenty of families that say, you know what? Things are just not going that well this morning, so I'm not going to go. But if they had to go to work, they would make everything work. They would make everything work. So whatever you really love the most is what you give the most priority to. So weekly worship. Now, the New Testament church met on the Lord's Day. That would be Sunday in our day. And the Bible doesn't even forbid for you to meet on other days. I mean, there are people who meet on Saturday evening. We meet on Wednesday nights at our church. And some churches meet on Thursday night. Some have different times. We have a Sunday afternoon service here. And we have a Sunday morning at our church. And so the point is, it's not so much that, but it's a regular weekly worship a routine that you get into so that you are meeting on a regular basis to worship God. The Bible says that we are to be the kind of people that do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some. The command, by the way, in that text is not to assemble together. The command of that text is is that we are to give ourselves over to promoting good works in one another. And how we do that is by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Every time you're gone, it affects the church. That's just the way it works. Every time. Now, I know there's times we go away, we go away for vacation, rest, and we're sick. Please don't come when you're sick, right? But at the same time, there's commitment. We don't let all the things of the world and the trappings of the world take over our worship together. Here's a second one. Uh, We also not only have regular weekly worship, or actually, in our, in our regular weekly worship, here are some things that we should have. And these are clear from Scripture. We should have the singing of hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. That's included in the worship of the church. In Ephesians 5.18, he says, Don't be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another. One another who? One another in the church, the people of God, in psalms and hymns and spiritual song, seeking and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That doesn't even mean just here. It means everywhere as a believer. We need to be singing those things. And uh, God has given to us the great gift of the psalms to sing and the hymns and spiritual songs. These are blessings from God that we sing together as a body to the Lord. And then number two, not only singing of hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, but public reading of Scripture. I notice if you probably noticed that they Mark does that here. And there's a reason for that. That's not just liturgy. That's not just falling into some form that churches do. There's an actual intentional purpose of that. And that is this. God told us to. That's pretty intentional. In fact, in the passage in 1 Timothy 4:13 and in that passage he says as Paul's talking about to Timothy what he's supposed to do in the church, he says Till I come, I write these things to you that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church, the pillar and the ground of the truth. In other words, when we meet together as the church, here's how we are to conduct ourselves in that same book. He says, till I come, give your attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. And the word reading is the word for public reading. The public reading of scripture. 
In other words, we read the Bible because, first of all, God commands us to. Secondly, we read the Bible publicly because it has a sanctifying, saving work on all of us. The Bible's clear that the Word of God is inspired. It's, it's the very breath of God. And so whenever you read the Word of God to the people of God, it has a sanctifying work on His people it even says that all of the word of God is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and correction. We've been reading through the book of Revelation on Sunday morning, a chapter a Sunday. And of course, when you get to the harlot riding on the beast in chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation, everybody's like, I don't have a clue what he's talking about. But at the same time, and most people don't, by the way, and the word of God still has profit there. It can affect us even as a believer. It's profitable for us to hear the word of God. And then I'm going to close out with this one, okay, because I could go on forever and ever. The third element of our weekly worship together is expository preaching. Expository preaching. That's exactly what I am not doing here today. <laughs> I'm not doing expository preaching, which is usually verse by verse in a book. I know that Mark's been going through Philippians. Uh, we are currently going through um, Second Thessalonians in our church, and then we're going to go into James. And we go into the Bible verse by verse. We preach the hard passages, the easy passages, the complicated passages, because we know if we preach it word for word, verse by verse, we will not skip sections of the Scripture, which are the whole counsel of God. I know a pastor who years ago was preaching through the book of Romans, and whenever he got to Romans 9, he skipped it. That's not expository preaching. You need to preach all of the Word of God, no matter what and how complicated it is, and sometimes, frankly, how well your people may receive it. It is the Word of God. And one of the things I remember specifically whenever I was studying Hebrew in my seminary level times and Greek, I was fascinated with the fact that I was looking at the very forms of the words that God gave, especially in Hebrew. I mean, when you're reading the Ten Commandments in Hebrew, you're not reading what man's opinion is. You're reading the literal words that God gave to Moses. You know, every little hashtag, every little mark, every little uh, consonant that was there, those were the very words and letters from God. The same came with the New Testament, reading the Greek text and looking at how God had given this to us and knowing that these were the very words of God given to us. The original text is inspired, but the copies are clearly accurate. And so we preach not some of the word, we preach all of the word. All of the word. 2 Timothy 4.2, what does Paul tell Timothy? Here's his last words to Timothy whenever he leaves him. He's going to go and be beheaded by the Romans. He tells Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. What that means is, you know how you have uh, deer season, all right? Deer season, you can hunt deer, and then deer are out of season. Well, there's times whenever preaching the word is out of season. It's not that you shouldn't do it, it's that people don't want it. It's out of season. People don't want it. And then there's a time whenever churches go through where there is a season for it. People love it and they want it. Great revivals and great awakenings and things like that. The Reformation. Here he says, you preach it when they want it, preach, them, preach it when they don't. You preach the word, that's what you preach. 
You don't preach your opinion. You don't preach the news articles. You don't preach the Wall Street Journal. You preach the word of the living God. And even though books are good, I love books. I like reading books. But you don't preach books. You preach the Bible. Preach the Bible. Listen, the only thing that's going to grow you and make you like Christ is the word of God. Not the opinions of the pastor. That does not have the sanctifying work that the word of God has. You never go wrong if you're preaching scripture. Never. You're always going to be able to see the people of God benefit from it. So be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and teaching, expository preaching. One last text, and I want you to go there with me to see this. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. This kind of preaching has been around for a very, very long time. You look around today at most of the preaching we've had. I, I can't tell you how many people have come to our church now and have told us this very thing, that they cannot find solid expository preaching. They will go to church after church after church, and they will find something going on in the pulpit, but it's not usually expository preaching. It's kind of like more of the Stephen Furtick stuff. You know, get excited, get all fired up about nothing. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2 and following, listen to these words. The Bible says, So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from the morning until midday. Did you hear what he said? He read from the morning till midday. He just read the scripture. This is the Old Testament law. He says that he read till midday before the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra, the scribe, stood on a platform of wood, which he had made for this purpose. Here we have it. You got your pulpit, right? And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also a number of the men and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. And listen to this. And they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. That's expository preaching. They read the text. They explained the text. And they applied the text. That's what they're doing. And that's what the church is to be committed to. And that's just part of it. And we'll, we'll finish some more of this the next time. I'm able to be able to preach with you up here on the Lord's day. So let's take a moment and close in prayer, okay? Our Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege to be able to gather together again and to be reminded of these very basic, fundamental, but very important truths. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the uh, blessing of being able to be here and to be a part of it. We thank you for the commitment of the people here who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that you would bless them. 
that you would grow them, that you would use them for your glory. I pray for Mark, Allie, and the family, that you would continue to give them what they need as they move forward to leadership here in this church. Lord, we know you're going to use this church in Rock Hill. We know, Lord God, there's such a need for this here. and We pray, Lord, you would continue to bring many more people here, many more families, that they can gather here to worship on the Lord's Day, be instructed in the Word, and scatter from this place to evangelize the lost. And we'll pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark, I'll turn it over to you, brother.